As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Michael Schumacher's seventh world championship in 2004 had been an inevitability for some time when F1 made it to Spa that year, but that year's Belgian Grand Prix became yet another history-making moment for Schumacher at the famous track where he'd made his debut in 1991 and claimed his first win in 1992. But uncharacteristically for that season, Schumacher claimed his final world championship while tasting defeat for only the second time that year. And it was another driver famed for being great at Spa, Kimi Raikkonen, who took a first win for McLaren that seemed unthinkable earlier in the year when it got off to a disastrous start. I'm Glenn Freeman and here to help me pick through a weekend where there was lots going on are Ed Straw and I'm delighted to welcome back ex-McLaren mechanic Mark Priestley for another appearance on the show. So Mark, great to have you back with us. When you think back to Spa 2004, dare I ask, what's the first thing that comes to mind? <laughs> uh, well, it, it's the it's the sort of only weekend of that season that really stands out to me because actually for the team, it was a fairly dismal year in reality and certainly the first half. So Spa was a, a sort of real gem in amongst the, uh, the, the difficulties and you know, you have to remember over, over a course of a long season, and, and I was just saying to Ed before we started recording, I'm saying a long season. When I look back, those seasons were actually sort of 16, 17, 18 races back then. And look at what we do now. So not really a long season at all, was it? But it felt like it at the time. And that was one of those races that just stood out as a real highlight. It gave us a real boost. Um, and so that my overriding memory is the uh, is a sort of celebration and the, and the relief, I guess, uh, at the moment we finally crossed the line. And Ed, what stands out for you? Well, obviously, Spa 2004, it's the Kimi Raikkonen win, but I'm going to go with the second one because Mark's kind of covered that, which is Giorgio Pantano, uh, Giorgio Pantano in the Jordan, just for his part in the first lap crash that happened as the cars came off Radion. <laughs> He'd been really sensible, avoiding the crash, backed off well out the way on the right-hand side of the track, shed loads of speed, but somehow he still managed to collect Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Bruni's crashed Minardi. He seemed to have the space and the time to roll off the brakes and get around him. It might be a really unfair impression, but... It, it just looks really comedic and unnecessary. It's probably doing him a disservice, but it is bizarre. I'd, I'd, I'd suggest everyone have a look at the replay of that because it just seems a, a bit of unnecessary accident joining. Well, we've, we've, I put out on Twitter uh, that we were doing this episode and asked people for their memories. And Pantano got a few mentions, actually. Um, 
Surprisingly, as did Ricardo Zonta. Lots of sympathy for him uh, for potentially losing out on a good result uh, at Toyota. Lots of talk, of course, of Kimi's win. And uh, the, the MP419B, as it was at this point, a surprisingly popular car, it seemed. People seemed to think it looked good, but had obviously driven like a dog earlier in the year. Lots of talk about tyre failures as well, as we'll come to. But let's get some more shout-outs in for those of you leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So thank you to Wordner Noznibor, uh, not Wow 28 Damon's Suspiciously Dark Hair, who on earth could you be talking about, I wonder, and to Nice as Pies for your reviews. And if you want to ask us anything about the V10 era for the end of the series, you can submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. You can also get early access to ad-free versions of the show, plus bonus content on your own special chance to ask questions for an exclusive episode by becoming part of the Race Members Club. So to find out all the other benefits you get from being a member and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. We quite often start these race weekend episodes by setting the scene in the championship, but there wasn't much of a scene, really. We were waiting for Schumacher to, to claim the title, so we'll get to the championship stuff later on. Instead, we'll start with what was the biggest story in F1 that summer, which was the Jensen Button contract saga. We covered Button's shock attempt to get out of his BAR contract and switch to Williams for 2005 in great depth in our Button 2004 episode in Series 3 with the help of BAR team boss David Richards. So go back and check that out. But one perspective we couldn't cover, and Mark, I think you can help us with this, is the, a hypothetical team insider perspective. Because one of the things that was said a lot over the, this weekend and Hungary before it was that the news of Jensen trying to leave hadn't affected morale or his relationships inside the team so if you were well when you were a mechanic in an f1 team if your star driver had suddenly and unexpectedly tried to break his contract at mclaren would it still be business as usual once you got back into the garage and you're working together on a race weekend well on one level yes because everyone's professional and you just kind of get on and you zone in and do the job but but of course, on another level, you can't help but know your driver doesn't really want to be there. I mean, the, the only thing that I can really equate it to, and it's not in any way the same, but when I know that having worked with Kimi closely for many years at McLaren, when he announced that he was leaving to go to Ferrari, who were, don't forget, you know, our biggest rivals really at the time, um, you know, I felt sort of a pain. I felt a little bit hurt by that inside, but that was all done above board and it was all kind of communicated in the right way. Imagine inside that team at BAR, how the way it was communicated and then the ensuing sort of battle that followed. You can only imagine that, that why on earth would you want that guy there following year when everyone knows he doesn't want to be there and he's only there because his team have won a legal battle to, to force him to stay. So I can imagine that's an incredibly difficult situation inside any team environment and especially a, a competitive Formula One team. You need everybody to be giving everything from the mechanics, from the truck drivers, from the engineers, everybody, and the driver included in that. You need everybody to be able to, to be willing to sacrifice, to go above and beyond, to, to deliver the results you're, you know, you're after. And when you know that somebody doesn't want to be there, how on earth can you trust they're going to do that? That would be my biggest question. That, that almost sounded like a, a segment from one of your podcasts, actually. Should we plug that here? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? It wasn't supposed to be a segue, but yeah, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I've started doing a podcast based on my time in the sport and um, 
the sort of tagline for the podcast is um, to sort of maximize your life using a, an F1 mentality. So what I try and do is I pick out lessons from the world of Formula One, and that could be anything that's going on in the world of Formula One today and some of my past experiences and uh, and just try and think about those situations that we all face in our daily lives and think about them as if you were a Formula One team. So how would a Formula One team react to these kind of things in this elite environment that Formula One exists in? So, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I do a lot of the speaking circuit to a corporate level on the same sort of subject. And I thought, you know, this isn't just for businesses, not just for corporate. This is for everybody. Everybody could benefit from thinking the way F1 teams think. So, it's called Pit Lane Life Lessons. Uh, you can find it anywhere. Just search Pit Lane Life Lessons. And uh, and yeah, I hope anyone enjoys it who goes to give it a try. Yep, I thoroughly recommend it. Now, we won't go into too much more detail on the button story because we've done it before in so much depth. But interestingly, in the run-up to the Belgian Grand Prix, there's a bizarre cameo in this narrative from BMW boss Mario Tyson when he felt the need to speak up to deny reports that BMW hadn't been fully involved in Williams's decision to sign Button and Mark Webber for 2005, Tyson said, We have been involved from negotiate in negotiations from day one. In both cases, Frank Williams asked us to support his plans and he had our full support concerning both drivers. Therefore, I was rather astonished when I read about alleged differences of opinion within our team. The opposite is the case. In the past 12 months, the cooperation has become closer and better. Now, Ed, we know the BMW-Williams relationship was pretty strained by the summer of 2004. Was Tyson almost overcompensating here by trying to make sure everyone knew BMW was happy with the driver decisions as well? Yeah, there's a saying about protesting too much, isn't there, that probably applies here. And I'm going to probably have to issue a, a spoiler alert because at this point, BMW was about 10 months away from completing that deal to buy Sauber and establish its, its own team. I think that tells you everything about the way that partnership was going. <laughs> It was just an unconvincing attempt to present a united front that just emphasised that it was disunited. Williams and BMW never really gelled as they needed to, or perhaps as F1 demanded teams and manufacturer suppliers did at this time. You needed that integration. Everyone needed to be on the same page. Politics and factionalism just, just wouldn't work. And the partnership was already in a clear decline. It was past its peak, which was probably the championship run the previous year. And behind the scenes, both sides were doing a very bad job of making it seem like anything other than a deteriorating relationship. Whether or not BMW had as much input as it wanted to on the on the driver decision in this case, there's no question that there was just a very, very disunited, fraying, probably frayed by this stage relationship. And both sides made that very, very clear behind the scenes as well as with uh, reading between the lines from their public statements. Yeah, make sure you check out our Walrus Williams episode for a bit more on that. Now, while BMW, uh, BMW, BAR didn't really entertain the idea of needing to find a replacement for Button because it was so sure it would win that legal case Mark mentioned earlier to hold him to his contract, that didn't stop the team's ex-driver Jacques Villeneuve going on a charm offensive to try to win back what was now one of the most competitive seats on the grid. Villeneuve gave an exclusive interview to Autosport where he said there were no hard feelings over losing his drive to Takuma Sato for 2004, adding, If pride doesn't get in the way, then I think it would work out. If pride gets in the way, then it will be much more difficult because there's no argument that can beat pride. That's the only thing that could block it pride and political games. Jacques also said that he took pride in seeing the team do well because it justified his decision to stick with them for five years 
and it was decisions and development directions that he was involved in the previous year that were now bearing fruit. He also said BAR's switch to Michelin was a big transformative factor from 2003 to 2004, saying as soon as they changed tyre supplier, they gained a second and a half. So put those tyres on last year's car and see where we would have been. The car was competitive last year. Ed, BAR obviously never needed to find that button replacement for 2005, but would a Villeneuve return have been a good idea if they had needed a new driver? Well, Jacques Villeneuve clearly thought it would be. He was almost like the, <laughs> he's like the over-enthusiastic kid in class trying to get that few extra centimetres on their raised hand that they're the answer to the question. And obviously Villeneuve was so determined to get back into Formula One at this stage and yeah, being very proactive. On a more serious note, he was a logical choice. If you're a, a top team, BAR was, well, had become a top team in this season. So they wanted a top driver. And if you want a, a world champion status driver, short of persuading Mika Hakkinen out of retirement, Jacques Villeneuve is your option. And beyond that, you're looking at, you know, someone like David Coulthard could have been available. They inquired about Jarno Trulli, but he'd already signed up for Toyota. So there weren't that many options. So actually... Just if you're a team needing a driver of that status, Villeneuve was the obvious guy on the sidelines. Was complicated by the history, though. And although it is true that he was dropped partly due to the fact they needed to get Takuma Sato in, so there were wider circumstances there that, that applied pressure to his his seat. And Villeneuve obviously was going to make a big effort to, to reintegrate. I would imagine that BAR were very pleased they didn't have to go down this route. It's rarely a good idea to go back to to an old driver really it often doesn't work well particularly so soon after uh, after they've been dropped but what's probably more significant is just how determined Jack Villeneuve was to, to get back onto the grid telling all and sundry that it'll be fine and all these people well not all these people but the few people he'd been quite critical of not so long ago he was suddenly best mates with which wasn't entirely convincing so there have been some uncomfortable conversations but as we've talked about before on this podcast, Villeneuve was a very, very good driver, so a realistic option. It was one of those that, from a sporting sense, you know, you'd probably want him in your car, wouldn't you? But but the, the sort of complications that it might bring from a political sense and from everything else around the team is one of those things that you sort of weigh up. Maybe not quite exactly the same, but maybe in the way that people might have looked at Alonso in the last few years. You definitely want him in your car because you know he's talented, but what else is he going to bring to the team dynamic and the political environment around that team? And do you weigh up the two and, and have to sort of work out the pros and cons? I imagine it might have been a bit like that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Inevitably, in a season dominated by one team as 2004 was by Ferrari, there was lots of debate about how to fix F1 to make it more entertaining, and with that, lots of elements of the F1 package were under scrutiny. More than 80% 80 of respondents to an Autosport fan survey said they were against refuelling, which was in the sport at this time. And McLaren driver David Coulthard said that was a surprising result, but he agreed with it. DC said, in the days before refuelling, there was more of a chance 
uh, to change the race as people were kinder to tyres or not, depending on how they drove. Looking at history, it's fair to say to rely on a pit stop as being the pivotal excitement of the race is soon going to be forgotten by the public. Mark, you were involved in F1 pit stops back in this era and you're, you're in the garage, you're one of those guys getting hyped up for it. Were you a fan of refueling? I was a fan of, of being involved in it because I thought it was exciting. It was great. We had some real interesting innovations from a team perspective, you know, McLaren specific around our refueling uh, strategies and procedures. Um, in terms of whether it spiced up the racing, I was not really a fan because, you know, most, you know, when you're involved in the pits and in those pit stops to be central to the way the race plays out, it's huge. It's a big moment for you. It's exciting. It's an adrenaline rush. So, you know, I had two sides on it. If you're looking from the outside, if you look back at this era of the sport, I don't know what the percentages are, but I imagine a huge percentage of any overtaking that ever happened, happened in the pits, uh, you know, happened during refueling. And uh, from a fan perspective, you know, a little bit like what we're sort of edging more towards today, we want that overtaking to happen on track. Um, so the safety was never an issue or a concern for me. That didn't phase me in any way. Obviously, the costs involved in freight and transportation, all these things didn't really fall on my plate. So it wasn't really an issue. It was more about the being involved in the adrenaline rush and some of the clever ideas we were able to come up with. You know, when everybody has exactly the same kit and the same procedures to, you know, can only deliver fuel at the same rate. We had some brilliant little inventions that gave us a small advantage. And those things I really enjoyed. Ed, interestingly, Coulthard felt that F1 should get rid of refueling, but also allow drivers to go through a whole race without a stop if they could look after their tyres. When we finally got rid of refueling, we've always had the mandatory tyre change. Would it make it any more interesting if if that wasn't an enforced part of the rules and you could go the whole race on a, one set of tyres? It's one of those things that is always tempting to say yes to because we all think about I don't know, doing a Gerhard Berger Mexico 86 and just doing a non-stop victory and having different tyre compounds on each of the four corners to make it exciting. But also, we do have to remember that strategy was an inexact science, even less even less exact kind of in the mid-80s, which I just referred to. Uh, it, it was becoming much more of a science by the time we get to 2004, and today it, it's a huge thing. The amount of effort the team's put into understanding the tyre behaviour and the tyre science is enormous. So there will always be a certain amount of convergence. I think we have to remember that the, the mandatory tyre stop that effectively is in Formula 1 now, it, it's a band-aid really, isn't it? It's there to create strategic variation, and that's why it was inserted. So... That shows what it what it's there to do. Rules that impact strategy are not really the, the the focal point. It's all about the nature of the cars and the tracks, really, that that dictates how how the racing is. So it would be interesting, but I suspect in the long run, actually enforcing some strategy decisions means there's at least a little bit more chance for for divergence because everyone will just settle gradually on the on the same sort of thing because they've all got similar understandings of tyres, particularly today where we've got uh, a one tyre spec so interesting idea but probably wouldn't create the exciting variety and the the Thierry boots and rear guards at the Hungara ring that we like the idea of. <laughs> Glenn can I uh, have permission to jump back a moment because I've just remembered I was just talking about some of the innovations we had around refueling there's a brilliant one that I've got to share with you Go that wasn't public knowledge at the time but in the refueling days when everyone had this mandated same technology same kit same hardware as I said, delivered fuel at the same rate. You weren't allowed to modify the rigs in it, the fuel rigs in any way. 
And yet, of course, if you could find a way to speed up your refueling pit stop, it was a differentiator. We had a great little trick at McLaren where the refueling man wore a doctor's stethoscope. He had the, the thing in his ears and then the, uh, the tube went down his arm and the sleeve of his race suit came out at his hand, which had the piece that the doctor puts on your chest to listen to your heart. And as the fuel rig went on, he held that little stethoscope onto the nozzle of the fuel rig. So when the fuel was being delivered, he could hear what was going on inside. And just before or when the, the required amount of fuel was, was delivered, there was a little sort of butterfly, motorized butterfly valve inside the nozzle that used to were closed. And only when that was closed, did the lights then turn to, to green on the nozzle and you could start the process, a sort of two stage process of releasing it. So, of course, we could hear when that butterfly valve was starting to whir up and close, having had all the fuel delivered. And he could then start the first phase of this release before the lights went green. And then as the lights went green, we were ready just to, pay, to take the, the nozzle off. And I used to think that was like the most genius thing in the world. Nobody knew about it. It was perfectly legal because we weren't modifying the rig. And it probably only saved us a few tenths, maybe half a second on each stop. But of course, as we all know, those things can make the difference. And, and that was one of those little genius ideas that I used to love about Formula One still today. But, you know, when you're involved in it, perhaps even more so, that, uh, that was a big secret. No one knew. Only us on the inside had any inkling of. But I thought it was so simple yet effective. I thought it was brilliant enough to share with you. <laughs> that was definitely worth stepping back for. Brilliant. Uh, going back to tires almost unfortunately after that story <laughs> peter sauber took a swipe at f1's tire war in a q a released by the sauber team uh, saying he believed the development race involving bridgestone and michelin or as i just tried to say brichelin uh, had become too extreme <laughs> sauber added for us this fight between two manufacturers continues to present a problem the top teams are using roughly two-thirds of their testing for tyre development and our resources simply do not allow us to keep up with that. The influence of tyres on the results has simply become too strong these days. Ed, you love a bit of Sauber. Did did Peter have a point here? Should there have been a way to have a a tyre war that could be kept under control in some way? It's a nice idea, isn't it? It's one of those things where you can state a desired outcome, but actually getting it is actually quite difficult I, I get the frustration because Sauber they were the top independent I think that year they had a budget of like 50 to 60 million pounds something of that region Bridgestone actually wanted Sauber to do more of the tyre testing because they were effectively the second Bridgestone team since they lost BAR but Sauber just couldn't do it as they didn't have the the, the budget or the the staff to to step up but ultimately when it comes to a tyre war and the impact it has even if you restrict testing there's always going to be a focus on one or two teams. Perhaps with restricted testing, there's even more reason why there'd be a focus on on one main team. So I don't think it necessarily means that you can have this kind of contained tyre war. And it's not about tyre specs as well, because you have to remember that the way tyres work, the grip tyres give is a, not just down to how the tyres work, but down to a huge number of aspects of the car, the way it presents the tyres the to, the, to the track and the 2004 Sauber was quite a Ferrari-esque car, controversially so. But even that had times where Ferrari was working the tyres really well. And because it had a bit less downforce, the Sauber just wasn't. And it got into tyre trouble. So these tiny differences uh, make the differences. I think a tyre wall can be fascinating. But if you're going to have it, you kind of have to accept that there will be competitive advantages probably to to a few teams there will be a hierarchy uh, within it and I get why it was so frustrating at this time but 
as we've seen from the the control tire era just everyone having the same tire isn't necessarily a good thing as well because still the cars have different characteristics and tires will work better on a certain type of car than, than another just purely down to the way it operates Another topic of debate around the show in F1 was put forward by Jaguar boss Tony Purnell in F1 Racing magazine, where he outlined his idea for, get this, qualifying races. The format he proposed was not the sprint race format we have today. It was to have two extra races, one on Friday and one on Saturday. Grid positions would be drawn out of a hat for the Friday race and then reversed for the Saturday race. So if you drew pole position for Friday, you'd start last on Saturday. The results from the two races would then be combined to make the grid for Sunday's Grand Prix. This idea was put to a few team personnel over the Spa weekend. Williams's Sam Michael said he liked the current practice and qualifying format and he didn't think there'd be much overtaking in the qualifying races and there'd be a much higher risk of damage. BAR's Jeff Willis said the format or the technical regulations weren't the problem and that good racing was defined by the circuits. He pointed to the fact that F1 had just had an entertaining German Grand Prix at Hockenheim and then a boring race at the Hungaro Ring. He said BAR wouldn't oppose a format change if it went through, but he said all the engineers in the pit lane liked the idea of qualifying showcasing how fast their cars really are. Toyota boss John Howitt said F1 needed to work harder to find out what the public really wanted from the weekend format, but he said Toyota would go with whatever was decided by F1 and the FIA. Mark, as a mechanic, how does that idea sound to you of having two extra races and particularly that that, that extra chance for all, all this damage you could have got? Does does the idea of two sprint races on a Friday and a Saturday give you chills? Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's the first thought <laughs> I just had was uh, was damage, you know, uh, because, of course, when your race is the last thing of the event, the damage, you know, you don't want it because it obviously affects your result. But in terms of the workload that it creates, it's almost inconsequential because at the end of that weekend, at the end of Sunday, you're going to be stripping the car down anyway. You know, it, it doesn't add to your weekend necessarily only the disappointment of a bad result. But um, if those things happen earlier in the weekend, it literally just adds to an already incredibly tough workload, especially back then when there was no such thing as a, a paddock curfew and these kind of things where, I mean, we did literally work all night on many occasions to get the cars ready between a Friday and a Saturday and even between a, a Saturday and a Sunday. So, and that was with a standard way of working that we were at the time. And Apart from all of that, I used to love qualifying and qualifying for me. And I agree with this idea that, you know, a Grand Prix weekend should showcase all of the different aspects of a car and the team, as well as the drivers. Friday is all about learning and developing and understanding. And, you know, as somebody who's on the technical side of a team, that was always fascinating to me because we could try new things. We could tweak things and, and get some data back and understand what the changes we'd made, how they'd worked or not. Uh, and then we'd go into a, a process of analysis to try and figure out what we could do. That was always a, a sort of nice strategic battle that I really enjoyed. And then Saturday, when it came to qualifying, you know, was all about putting everything on the line, going as fast as you could, putting the car and driver and team on their absolute limit. And and I loved that as well. And, and then you get to Sunday and you get to showcase the, the racing aspect. So I loved the way that it was. I love the way it is today. I think we get all three of those aspects even on the current sprint format that we have now, we still get that qualifying, even though it's on a Friday, we still get to see the cars at their fastest. And I think a Grand Prix weekend should always include that. Ferrari's Ross Braun talked more generally about trying new things and the similarities with some of the things we hear him say in recent years in his new role in F1 
uh, are incredible considering he was in the thick of competition and, and dominating F1 at the time. Back in 2004, Braun said, what is lacking in our sport is a mechanism to assess ideas on a proper basis to decide what is viable. The best approach would be to set up a working group, a couple of people from the media, a couple of engineers, a couple of team principals, and everybody accepts their conclusions as to what we are going to have for qualifying. Then maybe have one race a year where we can try all the new systems to see whether they work. Because the problem is, if we commit, we have to design the cars and we get frustrated when the car we designed doesn't suit the qualifying system. Ed, I've lost count of how many times we've heard Ross say stuff like that now he works for F1. Was he right even back in 2004 about trying to come up with a way to try all these things in the real world? Well, broadly speaking, he's coming up with a very difficult to argue with decision-making process, i.e. think about what you're doing, come up with an idea, assess it, and then test it. I think have... Sounds so uh, easy. Uh, exactly. Theory, I mean, it? it's not really <laughs> practical to have a non-championship race to, to test it. And I would argue a sample set of one race event doesn't really tell you anything because there's so many factors that can happen. You could have the best race that ties in with some innovation that's nothing to do with it or you could have the best innovation that would transform Grand Prix racing and the race just happens to be a bit dull through no reason uh, of that and you can't really test it in that way but the broad principle of trying to have a, a better process and F1 has improved on that over, over the years and I think it is probably better now than it's ever been in terms of the work that goes into these ideas and most importantly trying to understand what you're trying to achieve as your first thing because you can have all the ideas in the world if you don't really know what your objective is what you're trying to create then you're just completely scatter uh, scattergun so yeah it makes perfect sense but inevitably once you get the teams heavily involved in in these things they will end up wanting to push whatever suits their own particular agenda and that's just the politics of it so you also need some independence and as we know from people who work for the FIA and F1 who've had affiliations with teams in the past that independence even if it is there is sometimes perceived not to be. More rules talk now, but this was focused on the technical and sporting regulations for 2005, which remarkably, by the end of August 2004, still weren't locked in. The teams had until the 6th of September to come up with an agreed proposal for the rules. Otherwise, the FIA would be allowed to enforce the ideas of President Max Mosley's choosing. Ross Braun was relaxed about the new rules, which would include downforce cuts and tyres that had to last an entire race distance. And he felt that even with the delay to the changes being made official, it was clear enough to the teams uh, what they were working with. Although, as we discussed in our Ferrari 2005 episode back in Series 1, behind the scenes, Ross was fighting these changes like mad because he knew the tyre rule was going to be a disaster for Ferrari and Bridgestone. So make sure you go and check that out for a bit more detail. BAR's Jeff Willis said, We need a set of rules to be fixed now. In fact, we needed them fixed four months ago. So even though they are not all that comfortable for us, we would much prefer just to know what the rules are uh, that we're designing next year's cars to and stick to them. Mark, what was the feeling like inside a team like McLaren when this kind of politic politicking over the rules is going on? Do you, do you guys on the shop floor have any kind of unease when rules are being decided late? Or is that just a problem for Adrian Newey and his team of designers? 
Yeah, the, the problem really does fall uh, more towards the management side of things. But what it does give you is this sort of sense of, of utter chaos. And and I actually remember during these sort of negotiations, because, you know, we, we don't get any special inside information in particular from the team during these things. It's pretty much happening behind closed doors. So we read about these things in the same way that fans read in the media. And I remember just a whole lot of sort of eye rolling, um, you know, this is what's happening again, because it wasn't the first time that we had political disagreement. And, and I mean, goodness me, it's not uh, certainly wasn't the last time we, you know, it's almost impossible to get everybody in Formula One to agree on anything. And actually, the last couple of years, if you look at modern Formula One, it's been a revelation that we've managed to, to sort of find some way to at least apparently at least get some agreement on these uh, these new set of rules that we're currently in. So. Um, it was more about eye rolling and sort of, you know, tutting away, thinking, oh, my goodness, it's, it's almost like this bunch of kids have been allowed to come and make up the rules. It's like a school playground trying to decide which game you're going to play at break. No one can quite figure it out. And you're waiting on the two team captains or whatever to decide what it's going to be uh, because you just want to get on with it. And that's how it felt. So it was frustrating, but it didn't really impact my my day, I guess, in that sense. That's a brilliant analogy. Um, Braun said... <laughs> The only part of the regulation still being argued about by this stage was a proposed switch to engines that had to last two race weekends instead of one. And he said two teams were objecting to that. Now, it hasn't taken much effort to work out which uh, who was one of those teams because McLaren's Ron Dennis, who of course had Mercedes engines that weren't famed for their lifespan in this era, went on a series of rants during the Spa weekend about how the rules were being created to favour Ferrari which was well known to have incredible reliability and hardly ever suffered engine failures during Michael Schumacher's dominant run. Ron said, quite deliberately, regulations are proposed that favour one team over another. If one team has an engine that currently does uh, 1,500 kilometres and another has one that does 500 kilometres and suddenly you've got a rule that the engine has to do two races, then you have a situation where those who are already close to that level have got a clear advantage. He added that he felt making a set of tyres last an entire race would favour Bridgestone as well, which is hilarious given what actually happened in 2005. Uh, and he said the FIA was creating rules that favoured Ferrari to destabilise the other teams so they couldn't remain united in their battle with F1 for better commercial terms. His final point that I'll include was a call for rule stability, which he felt would close the field up as the top teams reached the point of diminishing returns. So, Ed, there's, there was quite a lot from Ron there. Was any of what he was saying making sense? Some of it. Uh, it's true to say that rule stability can lead to convergence in general, but you do need those to be the right rules. Otherwise, the argument is a reason not to fix something that's wrong. Um, the engines, I think, was more that it, it worked against Mercedes than it favoured Ferrari fundamentally because, as you said, Mercedes had reliability problems. The tyres are the interesting ones. I, I, I slightly get why... He might have argued it would favour Bridgestone because the Bridgestones were a really great race tyre that year. They were a bit less prone to graining than the, the Michelins were. The Michelins tended to work really well in qualifying. The Bridgestones slightly less well for various reasons we'll, we'll talk about later. But it did also fundamentally misunderstand how the Bridgestone tyres were conceived because they were short duration tyres ultimately. So it was actually quite bad for Bridgestone. So I think he slightly got that aspect of it wrong. But I think what he says reflects the paranoia, doesn't it? You know, there were times when there was a certain desire for Ferrari to do well, and certainly they weren't going to make rule changes that worked against Ferrari, let's put it that way. But 
it was just, I think, this automatic defensive position that they'll get into. Of, right, any rule changes pro Ferrari and against us, and you see that paranoia. Actually, the the Ferrari v McLaren battles of this period, they were intensely paranoid and controversial and political and so it just reflects that general feel of what f1 was at that time for much of that first decade of the 21st century when it was mclaren and and ferrari going at it so a mixed bag what he said there that i think probably represents how formula one was and the the tensions at that time to give you an idea of, of the level of those tensions, the McLaren-Ferrari era, I mean, I joined McLaren in 2000 and that was the height of the sort of Mika Hakkinen versus Schumacher or, or McLaren-Ferrari years. And there were a number of occasions after an incident where, you know, there'd been something controversial and there was this big split amongst the fans and, and fans back then were really quite vociferous, a little bit more like we're seeing now with the Hamilton-Verstappen, you know, battles in the grandstands. Back then it was McLaren-Ferrari we were actually on a number of races, particularly when we went to Italy, we were told by our own team not to go in wearing the team travel kit. We weren't allowed to take branded bags, branded suitcases, which we did everywhere because we were paranoid that Italian uh, you know, baggage handlers at the airport would, be, would, would sort of destroy our bags. Um, we had to travel in sort of incognito into Italy because there was so much hatred for McLaren. And I remember walking... I think it was at Monza. There's an area where you walk. You have to walk to cross over to the sort of infield. And you walk through a sort of, uh, it's kind of a fence either side where the fans are on the other side of the fence. But it's a relatively narrow tunnel, if you like. And I remember fat Ferrari fans trying to grab hold of my shirt and literally, you know, it was terrifying, screaming, shouting, spitting at us, trying to grab bags and shirts off our backs. And so that gives you a sense of how passionate, and I'm not saying this was just down to Ferrari, because I'm sure the British fans were saying the other way to some extent, but the passion between those two sets of fans, and therefore that filters down into the teams, almost bordered on hatred at times. So it was a really kind of extreme time. I don't remember it happening for many, many years after that, uh, as the battles kind of raged more with Ferrari, with Renault and other teams joining the fray. So it was a real... Between those two teams at that time, it was incredibly vociferous. Let's uh, let's move down the grid a bit and talk Toyota for a bit, because as well as dropping Cristiano De Matta from its driver lineup over the summer, it was also slimming down its management structure, structure with Ange Pasquale leaving immediately and Norbert Crayer leaving at the end of the season. In talking about these changes, Toyota boss John Howitt felt the need to deny that Toyota's Germany-based race team was being micromanaged from Japan. How it said, there seems to be a misconception that we are totally controlled from Japan and definitely that is not the case. I think we make a lot of the decisions in Germany. We get approval for certain actions, but the decision is normally made in Germany. We have a, lo- we have a lot of autonomy and we are accountable and responsible with that autonomy. Ed, do you buy that? Did Toyota Motorsport in Cologne ever have the control it needed over the F1 programme? It's fair to say that it wasn't exactly micromanagement from Toyota in Japan, but there was a very keen active involvement from speaking to those who were involved in the team over a long period of time. It, it crops up. I mean, John Howard, he, he was someone who had a, a proper feel and interest in motorsport, but he was also corporate Toyota, so he's sort of defending that there. You have to remember, when you're talking about a big car company, you can give something like Toyota F1 a lot of autonomy by the standards of the way your, your company works, but it's still just not enough given how ridiculously fast moving formula one 
is. And uh, people talked about there were times when there were some decisions that needed to be made. And you might have to, you know, say European afternoon, you might need to get an answer from Japan. So you get it overnight. And okay, that might only be 12 hour delay or something. But that compounds over time. And it just creates a certain flat-footedness. And Toyota was just starting to tackle this with Mike Gascoigne coming in. And the results did did subsequently in, improve a bit. But those problems were were never vanquished. That whole Toyota way thing that they wanted to do, it just, just didn't work. You've got to do Formula One the Formula One way. And if you've got a manufacturer team, you leave it almost total autonomy. You create some basic backgrounds, give it what it needs, put the right people in and let it go. And if you want a bit of evidence probably the best bit is that a couple of years later Toyota switched from Michelin to Bridgestone tyres wasn't designed around the Bridgestone so the car didn't work well in 2006 that decision was entirely motivated by Toyota the wider company wanting to join up with with Bridgestone and it made the the Formula One team performance worse and ironically Mike Gascoigne got ousted after that for poor performance but that tells you which way the bread was buttered as far as Toyota was concerned. So yeah, that was always a problem and one of the fundamental reasons why despite all that money and resources, it never won a Grand Prix. A lot of similarities to the Jaguar situation, isn't there, with with Ford kind of uh, also trying to pull the strings from uh, from the States, I think. Yeah, definitely. Mark, what was the view of Toyota within the pit lane? Were, were you looking down the road at them thinking with all those resources, eventually they would get it right and become a threat? Yeah, I think so. I think that was the, the general feeling that uh, it was only a matter of time because there was a, a real feeling, and this was backed up by a lot of evidence, that you know, money, a lot of money spent in the right way will win you a, you know, that's how you win the world championship. Um, it's not how every championship was won, but it was certainly a, you know, if you didn't have money, you'd really struggle to do anything. So if you had money, you know, that was a huge step in the right direction. Of course, then you have to spend it in the right way. You have to have the right people. You have to make the right decisions and all of these things that Ed's just alluded to weren't being done perhaps in the in the right way, but they had the money there. And that's, you know, that there's only a few teams on the grid at any given time that have the money. I mean, we're into a slightly more even uh, playing field today with the cost-capped environment. But back then, money was the thing you needed to win, and they had that. So, yeah, I guess it was um, it was a bit of an eye-opener. But we all thought that, yes, it was only a matter of time. They're building towards the big success. They would be the next big threat to the big two or three teams that, that currently existed. On track on the race weekend, Williams poked a little fun at some of its rivals during Friday's running. Spa was back on the calendar after a year away due to a tobacco advertising ban in Belgium. And as the likes of Ferrari, McLaren, BAR and Renault all hit the track proudly displaying the logos of their major tobacco sponsors, Williams ran a sticker on its car saying tobacco free. Williams had last run with tobacco sponsorship in 1999 and with a wider 2006 ban coming in, the pressure was on the other teams to find new funding. Frank Williams said at Spa, we are very happy to be representing this particular message. We saw the link between tobacco and Formula One was going to be finite. I can't emphasise strongly enough it was time to get away. The writing is on the wall. It has, it has been good to Formula One, but the world is changing and we hope we are slightly ahead of it. The other teams now are facing an abrupt shuddering shock and now they have to go out and find real money. We obviously hope they are unsuccessful. Now, before we ask Mark about what it was like working for a team that was still relying on tobacco sponsorship in this era, we're going to quickly hear from Jim Wright, 
Jim is now a columnist for the race website and he worked at Williams on the sponsorship and commercial side for many years and he was at the forefront of the team's efforts to move away from tobacco sponsorship at the turn of the century. So let's hear some insight from Jim. We were at the time in a relationship with GlaxoSmithKline and we were running smoking cessation products uh, called Nicotine CQ. But that deal was um, not universally funded through all the markets. So there were some markets that would happily contribute and pay, other markets didn't. And we got to a point where we said, look, guys, you know, either everyone's got to pay here and, and, and make it worthwhile or, or, or we don't. And I think there was some bright idea to say, well, where's the market we're racing in? Um, let's take off the Niquit in CQ or augment the Niquit in CQ with, with some uh, smoke-free uh, tobacco messaging. Um, and it was a little bit to, to put pressure on GlaxoSmithKline to, to come up with more, which didn't work. <laughs> and, and it was a little bit... You know, in, in in the line of, of what we started in in two thousand with a brave decision to to renounce tobacco, and and that really came from BMW's wish to to not have tobacco messaging on the car, and and Frank said, let's be a, ahead of a curve on this. Let's be the first to to denounce it, and he placed enormous faith. In, in myself and, and my team, Christian Vine and, and, and James Burton and, and, and guys like that, who, who at the time, you know, didn't have a ready-made replacement for a tobacco sponsorship. And, you know, we had two tobacco companies in, in the winter of 1999 wanting to sponsor us, Rothmans to continue and RJ Reynolds to, to come back um, to, to Williams. And Frank had the balls uh, and the vision to say, no, let's denounce it because our partner BMW doesn't want it. I believe in you guys. You, you're good enough to find replacements. And and I, I can't say to you what that meant at the time. I think it was fear. But in retrospect, you recognize a seminal moment when your boss places complete and utter trust in you. And, you know, if we, we'd failed, um, it's the livelihood of a, of a team, it's people's jobs uh, at stake, etc. So, yeah, it, it was a huge moment. Good stuff from Jim there. So, Mark, as I mentioned there, you were used to wearing team kit with big West logos on it in this era. Did you guys ever worry about what McLaren might do once it could no longer rely on tobacco sponsorship? Yeah, it was definitely a, a concern that was brewing. I'm sure not just at our team, but at most. You know, I'd, I'd lived in a, an era of Formula One that only ever had tobacco advertising. So I was there from 2000 to 2009. That was my stint at the team. And and you can imagine coming into that world at almost the height of the tobacco advertising period, there was... I mean, almost more money than you could dream up ways to spend. And that's an amazing feeling to be in a team like that when you're, you're, you're almost never limited by resource. You know, I'm on an, from an engineering background, so we had the very best of everything in terms of tooling and equipment and, uh, 
uh, we had, you know, we, I mean, from a, even from a personal perspective, we stayed in the finest hotels. We used to fly private aviation to some races. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, we had this, some incredible parties. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can imagine when they say tobacco advertising is going to come to an end. I mean, your, your first thought is, is one of some concern and even slight panic that the parties and the private jets were going to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the reality is that, uh, but yes, it was bubbling up. There were stories starting to be written in the media at the time. And, and like any fan out there, we read those stories, we read the press. Um, I remember even at that time, people speculating that this was such a threat to the industry that some teams may not survive. And I even remember reading a story, I'm sure, or hearing a story somewhere that said Formula One might not even survive. That's how big a threat to the industry this was being seen as to some people. And, you know, I was young. I was 22 or 23 at the time, having just come into the sport. Of course, I was concerned. That was my dream job. I just I'd spent years trying to get there. And now there's people talking about we may not survive this, this tumultuous period that we're about to enter. So there was worry in that sense. But I have to say at McLaren, we we had some really good sort of talks from Ron Dennis where the communication internally was pretty good, I have to say, around that. Ron got us all together and sort of talked about what was going on, explained what was going on in the background from a political sense and how we as a team were going to deal with it. And, you know, Ron, the one message I always remember from Ron around this time was he said, look, every team in the sport pretty much is seeing this as a threat because we've become so reliant on this, you know, this steady stream of income that we hadn't really had to work very hard for, if we're honest, in Formula One terms. The tobacco companies were throwing that money at us. And Ron said, look, I don't see it as a threat. I see this as an opportunity. Going through this massive change, it's an opportunity to do things differently. And so he sort of set out a plan as to where we were, we were, where we were headed and how he thought we were going to tackle it. And actually, I have to say, with the benefit of now hindsight, I think we dealt with it pretty well. We, you know, we landed a huge deal with Vodafone, was our next big sponsor off the back of, of West. Um, we did that before the official ending of the tobacco period. And and that was an almost unprecedented deal. It lasted for something like seven years. It was huge. It was it brought us in a lot of money. So I think we survived that threat, as many people saw it, by seeing it as an opportunity. And, and as I say, the way it was internally communicated to us was actually very good and, and really clear, which helped. Surprise, surprise, qualifying at Spa was affected by the rain. And in the one-shot format, that meant some drivers had worse conditions than others. Jarno Trulli made the right call to take intermediates for his run, and that helped him take pole position, narrowly ahead of Michael Schumacher, who took full wets on his Ferrari. The weather gave us a bit of a mixed-up grid, with Fernando Alonso and David Coulthard on the second row, then Giancarlo Fisichella, Rubens Barrichello, Mark Webber, Felipe Massa, Olivier Panis and Kimi Raikkonen completing the top 10 and we also had one Pablo Montoya and Jensen Button a bit out of position sharing the sixth row. Raikkonen should have been higher though he made a mistake at the bus stop chicane at the end of his lap as the rain worsened and McLaren reckoned that cost him fourth on the grid. So Mark we know Kimi's going to make up for that error in the race but on Saturday night how costly did you think that slip up was going to be for Sunday? Um, yeah, I mean, costly because uh, winning a race or certainly you know doing well in a race from tenth on the grid was you know as it is today is incredibly difficult to do. Uh, plus, we knew that or we expected the weather to be very different the following day, so it was always going to be a dry uh, afternoon on Sunday. So the opportunities that come with a wet race that might give you the advantage or the opportunity to step up, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily be there. So it would be a straight fight almost. Uh, so there was definitely concern around that. But but on the flip side of that. 
um, there was also positivity because don't forget we'd had a very a pretty dismal season up until this point. You know, we'd introduced a new car at the French Grand Prix because the first car of that year had been so poor. So we were only just about starting to experience even the opportunity to get good results. So the fact that we were disappointed, um, you know, by, by not getting fourth was a, a kind of sign of that we were on the up. You know, this is a we're starting to cling to some hope for the season. So it was a mixed bag that we were starting to generate some performance, but we'd missed out on that particular opportunity. Raikkonen made quick work of uh, trying to put that right on Sunday. He made up five places on the first lap, helped by a demon getaway and a bit, bit of chaos in the first few corners. There was a little collision with Massa at the source, which damaged Kimi's floor. But as the safety car came out after that massive pileup at Eau Rouge that we talked about in the intro, Raikkonen was already fifth just behind Michael Schumacher. He nailed Schumacher on the restart on lap five and a lap later put a move on teammate Coulthard to run third behind the Renaults of Trilli and Alonso. Schumacher was having trouble getting his hard tyres up to speed after the restart and after Raikkonen passed him, he was then mugged by Montoya at the bus stop. And this was a move that several of you who got in touch on Twitter mentioned as your big memory of the race, that Williams swooped around the outside in the first part of what was a reprofiled chicane, and then Montoya had the inside for the second part. Schumacher was impressed by this move, giving Montoya some rare praise. He said, he did a very good move on me, which I didn't expect, honestly. He passed me in a moment where I didn't think there was enough space, and when he was beside me, then it was too late to react. Explaining his lack of pace in this part of the race, Schumacher said he was hurt by the safety car period, as the Bridgestone tyres took longer than the Michelins to come back up to pressure and temperature. He also felt that without the safety car, Raikkonen wouldn't have been able to pass him early in the race, and he believed that without that and the later safety car periods that caused him the same problem, uh, Ferrari would have had a much stronger chance of winning. Ed, is that a fair assessment from Schumacher? Was he hindered by these these safety cars and these kind of resets that we had? Yeah, 100%. He definitely had a much better chance. The Bridgestones did have the slow tyre warm-up. That was a weakness through much of the season. It was a problem in qualifying. And so it's not great for restarts. It's not great after pit stops, but work really well once you're into kind of steady state running, if you want to put it that way. There was a modified rear construction tyre that did ease the problem that was introduced in Hungary the race before, but it was a slightly more flexible construction, tricky to get the setup right for, and they didn't want to use it for the high-speed tracks at Spa and Monza. So back to the older spec tyres for Belgium. So yeah, and as you mentioned, Schumacher was on the harder compound. So everything here was great for consistent, relentless pace in a stint. So find the space, deploy the speed, great. Stop-start stuff, terrible. And the way the race played out couldn't have been worse. If you look at it, straight away, you lose 11 laps. That's a quarter of the race to safety cars. So that's just a, a quarter of the race gone where you're meant to be lapping quickly, deploying your pace. And then certainly two, uh, two of the restarts were uh, very problematic for him in terms of timing. The other one, the restart after his pit stop, was actually positive because that eliminated the, the uh, time loss to, to Raikkonen. So we can't we can't say that was a big disadvantage because he gained a huge amount of time there. So, yeah, there was a little bit of luck there counterbalancing it. But you could see that in the bit of running, five laps of running between the second and third safety cars, he loses a bit of time on the first couple of laps. Then he just starts to chip away at Raikkonen again. It's just under a couple of tenths a lap he's gaining, but it shows there's something going on there. So all of that, combined with the fact that Ferrari would have expected Raikkonen to have been behind Schumacher, and not 
been able to to get through him and they'd have known Raikkonen was a threat just meant that this race actually pretty much everything went against them and yeah it, it was just just one of those things but I don't think we can be too uh, sympathetic to Ferrari given the amount of success they uh, they had this season that doesn't all of that doesn't mean that automatically Schumacher would have won but the point he made is that they'd have had a much better chance if the race had played out more normally 100% the case no, it made a nice change to have a race that worked against Ferrari a bit in 2004. <laughs> Early in the race then, it was shaping up to be a battle of the Renaults versus Raikkonen. But Renault's race quickly fell apart. Just after Trulli pitted from the lead on lap 11, Alonso took over at the front but then spun at Lecoum. And when he spun again a couple of corners later, it then became clear he'd gone off because he'd suffered an oil leak. That put him out and left Raikkonen in the lead. Alonso had been tucked up behind Trulli in the opening part of the race and afterwards he said he was just beginning to run at my full pace when he got out front and he reckoned he could have raced Raikkonen for the win. Mark, four quarters isn't really enough to give you a proper read from the McLaren garage and what Alonso's true pace could have been. <laughs> Do you think Alonso would have been tough to overcome for Raikkonen? Yeah, he was, you know, this was the, the beginnings of, of the Alonso era, wasn't it, in the sport? I mean, he went on to win the championship the following two years. So he was emerging as a genuine contender. We knew how good he was. And, uh, you know, we, we'd, as I said earlier, we'd started that season not really thinking about having main rivals at the front end of the grid because we hadn't been a front of the grid contender for much of it. All of a sudden, we joined that party with the, the, the advent of the 19B, the new car, uh, from a few races earlier. So we were now starting to find our feet in that space and, and race against these guys. And Alonso was definitely one of these people who, you know, we know what he's like now. He was exactly the same then, perhaps even more so tenacious. And, you know, to get part, you know, to catch him, even if you had a faster car, to catch him was one thing, to get past him was another. And I think from sitting in the garage, and I'm sure people still feel the same way today, if you come up behind Fernando Alonso, even if you've got a pace advantage, there's going to be a nervousness inside the garage as to how much risk you deploy to, to get past. You know, do you wait? Do you be patient? Um, these kind of questions. And I guess, you know, you can think about the way anyone coming up against a Max Verstappen in the past few years probably has a similar feeling. You know, is it going to be a risky move to try and get past, even though you think you've got a faster car? Of course, you have to do it if you want to get past and win the race. Uh, and we had no doubt that Kimi was more than capable. But I definitely think there was a feeling that Fernando was a brutally quick driver, but also really quite aggressive and, and, and could make his car very wide when he needed to be. Trulli's car lasted the distance, on the other hand, but it might as well not have bothered. Uh, after his first stop, the early race leader said his car became undrivable. He said he had no grip at the rear and therefore no confidence through the high-speed corners. Renault's Pat Simmons said the team were at a loss to explain what happened to Trulli, and he said there was nothing clear in the data to point to a problem, but Renault would bring forward the introduction of a new chassis for Trulli to the next race at Monza. This all came against the backdrop of simmering tension behind the scenes, with Trulli having made hints in the Italian media that things had changed for him since it was confirmed he was leaving the team. Renault denied that it had changed the way it was treating Trulli, but years later on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast, Trulli said it was clear team boss Flavio Briatore lost interest in him. Jano said, Flavio is such a nice guy when you don't have to deal with him. But when you have business with him, he becomes very difficult. Sometimes he does it on purpose. This is what was happening inside the team. I was not part of his plan because his plan was to push Fernando for the future. Ed, we know Trulli would only do one more race with Renault before splitting with the team somewhat brutally. Given that this is just a few months on from Trulli winning in Monaco, 
How badly was this handled in the summer of 2004? And was it by both sides, perhaps, or was it all Flavio's fault? Well, it's certainly a very complicated situation. I think there are problems on on both sides. Of course, Jano Trulli, at his best, could be absolutely mighty, stunningly quick in qualifying. You could argue he's right up there with one of the quickest drivers in, there's ever been in Formula 1 when in that zone. But he was almost balancing on that little peak and it would take the lightest breeze to sort of knock him off it in terms of uh, in terms of, of putting him off. Obviously, Briatore was his manager as well, so that complicated the, the situation. There was that slightly lackadaisical loss of third place to Barrichello on the last lap of the French Grand Prix. That's sort of blamed for being the turning point. There was a lot more to it than that, but... I think this idea that Trulli was making it deliberately difficult for him is definitely over overstating it. And we also have to remember that while Trulli was performing pretty well up against Alonso, in the races, Alonso was still the stronger driver pretty consistently when they were together. So Alonso was the guy they knew was 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 ideal. And Trulli, in many ways, wasn't the ideal teammate for a team that was about to emerge as a uh, as a championship threat. Giancarlo Fisichella, who replaced him, was probably a little bit better because he wasn't much of a threat in qualifying and he sort of picked up the points in the races. But as we saw at Spa, Trulli's pace just vanished once he made a pit stop and it's like he just sort of lost it. They never really found any particular reason for it but it's just that thing of I think truly if he's in the zone and he's happy and he feels supported everything's great but as soon as just a little bit of that is lost and this was what happened once it became clear that the contract negotiations for the following year were not going to be straightforward and ultimately failed completely just just threw him off so I doubt Briatore uh, handled it in the most sensible and conciliatory way but Trilly also contributed to it so it's a little bit 50-50 you'd have to say and Trilly at least was compensated for missing out on staying with a team that was about to emerge as a championship winner with an enormously lucrative Toyota deal even if it wasn't quite such a uh, a quick car but I'm pleased we did at least get to see Trilly in, in a pretty good car with Renault for, for a couple of years and we could see see what he was capable of doing. There was late drama in the race when Jensen Button suffered a high-speed tyre failure on the Kemmel straight, which spun him into the unlucky Minardi of Zolt Baumgartner. That was another key memory our audience was uh, kept picking out from this race. This brought out the safety car, and then a couple of laps after the restart, Montoya's Williams suffered a similar failure, and this was the third of the race, as Coulthard had had one earlier on as well. All three were right rear failures on Michelin tyres, and Toyota reserve driver Ryan Briscoe had had a big crash at Eau Rouge in practice with a tyre failure. Button wasn't impressed, saying you can't go racing like this, being unsure whether the tyre is going to last or not. It's a pretty serious problem if you have four people have failures and at over 200 miles per hour it can become very dangerous. I was very lucky in one way because it could have been horrific. Uh, when you're still doing 160 mile an hour backwards, it's pretty scary. Michelin eventually put the tyre failures down to the tyres getting pinched on a ridge inside the kerbs at the bus stop chicane. Briscoe's failure had been caused by doing this on the exit kerb, which was adjusted for Saturday's running, but the kerbs in the left and right of the chicane weren't changed, which seems a bit of an oversight. Mark, given we'd had a couple of big failures at Indianapolis earlier in 2004, although nothing like what we'd see in 2005... Was this weekend perhaps a sign that Michelin tyres weren't robust enough or, or, or is that curb explanation just a case of, of misfortune? Uh, no, I think the former is probably true. I think, um, you know, it's, it's slightly different. You have to remember back then when you have this tyre war, you know, as a, as a member of the team, you feel like Michelin are part of your team. 
you know, it's not like they're just an external tyre supplier. They are in your camp. You know, they're part of your your sort of armoury to go racing against the, the Bridgestone guys. And like any supplier that you rely on, you, you literally rely on them. You need them to, to, to up their game and to be as dependable as we think we are in everything that we're trying to do. Same with your engine, same with everything else. So when something like that happens, there is definitely a major question mark. And, and I don't think anybody believed that uh, this was a problem with the circuit because how can it be when when your opposition in terms of the Bridgestone runners are, are dealing with it perfectly well? So it felt like excuses. I definitely think there was major concern in terms of, I remember being in the garage during the race thinking there was concern because, you know, we've seen all these failures. They have all been Michelin failures. So we're running on the same tyres. Uh, we're starting to look very good in this particular race out of the blue that we never expected to be able to get anything from. And yet now we're towards the front and and we've got this huge question mark. Are we even going to get to the end? And that was an unusual feeling, by the way, because much more than today, back then, to get to the end of a Grand Prix was an enormous challenge. You know, we're pushing the limits of things like engine technology, bringing brand new engines almost to every race and upgrades. So you're always on and, and often just, a, just beyond the limit. So getting to the chequered flag was a huge relief every single race, much more than it is today. But with this added complication or this added worry of these potential tyre failures coming in, you know, we're on the edge of our seats at this point in the race, fingers crossed, just desperately hoping that we're not going to suffer. And actually, there's not a lot we can do. We can't stop and, and make another pit stop just for the safety of the tyres because we, we throw away the race. So at that point, you've got to hang on and hope for the best. The safety car for the button crash wiped out Raikkonen's lead and put Schumacher right on his tail again. And while Raikkonen dealt with the restart, Schumacher was coming back at him once he had his tyres up to temperature again, as we were discussing earlier, just as the safety car came back out for a collision between Christian Kleen and Coulthard. On the second restart with three laps to go, Raikkonen absolutely disappeared. He immediately set the fastest lap of the race and put two seconds into Schumacher. Schumacher said afterwards that once the safety car came out again so close to the end, he knew his race was done as he wouldn't have time to get his tyres back up to temperature. Raikkonen agreed, saying that he felt the Michelins would work better after having a few laps to cool down, so he felt pretty confident on that final restart that he was safe. Mark, did everybody in the McLaren garage feel that Kimi was safe by this point? Are you able to be confident, well, given that McLaren hadn't won a race for, by my math, 17 months by this point? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we hadn't dreamt of winning a race at any point. And even at that stage, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to, you know, you start to see it. You're that close to the chequered flag. You think this unbelievable thing could actually happen. And I have to say we had ultimate trust in Kimi. We knew that Kimi could deliver in these big moments. I think this was sort of beginning or, or around the peak of his career. Don't forget the season before 2003, we'd had an incredible year. You know, Kimi was still very early in his, in his career and yet we'd been in the championship fight till right at the very end of the season. So we knew he could deliver. He always did. Um, and actually, I remember being in the garage at that, that final safety car because things are now nervous and we've lost that little lead again. But we did know, like you just said, we knew that we had the better restart capabilities the Michelins would warm up quicker and we'd be able to get away we could trust Kimi to do that but even so the engineers are still talking to Kimi during the safety car period relaying instructions and it was all the normal instructions instructions for a restart they'd now heard don't forget three times prior to this during the course of the race 
And I remember, and it wasn't unusual by any means, but I remember the the expletives coming back across <laughs> the team radio from Kimmy, where he's sort of telling people in no uncertain terms, he doesn't need to be told again. He knows what he's doing in the famous words uh, and to just sort of leave him alone and get on with it. And he was, he was one of these people that just don't speak to me. Let me get on with it. I'm going to go and do my job. And, and so he did. <laughs> There you go. There's some insight for the listeners. Kimi Raikkonen was saying, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing long before it became cool. <laughs> so, yeah, but in words that couldn't be broadcast. Yeah, plenty of then. those. <laughs> uh, so Raikkonen won the battle, but Schumacher and Ferrari certainly won the war in 2004, claiming their fifth successive title together and Schumacher's seventh and final championship. Schumacher struggled to put the achievement into words, saying in the press conference that it was an extraordinary achievement, but he was trying not to talk too much and just enjoy the moment. Team boss John Todd said it was hard to believe what has happened over the last few years, with Ferrari achieving dominance that at that point had never been seen before in F1. And Ross Braun said that after a tough 2003 championship fight, Schumacher was revitalised by how good the F2004 was. Braun spoke about Schumacher on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast in 2019 and he said Schumacher had a majesty about him during this period and that you couldn't identify when his peak was because in Ross's words, he flatlined in a sense but at a level that was so high that it's difficult to pick out. Schumacher was a bit more forthcoming at a press conference at Monza a few days later saying that he didn't like to look back over his achievements and he wasn't even sure a winter break would be enough time for him to take it all in. He also said Ferrari expected a very tough fight in 2004, so it was surprised to have its most dominant season. Ed, Spa was only the second race out of 14 up to that point that Schumacher hadn't won. How good was Michael in 2004? How good did he need to be with that car? And why were Ferrari so much better after, as Ross mentioned, such a tough 2003? Well, I think in Schumacher's case, Ross Broad explained it pretty well. He was just an outstanding driver who was at, at a consistent peak. He was absolutely in tune with this team, with this car. It was really built around what he wanted, his specific, uh, not actually necessarily specific driving style, but the driving style he knew could be quickest, which was a style that some of other other drivers really struggled with. As far as Ferrari's concerned, it's quite a funny one because pre-season, all the talk was, oh, have Ferrari been too conservative? It's a very evolutionary car. Had they just been really, really cautious and everyone's going to move ahead of them with their clever walrus nose cars and the like. But actually, Ferrari just had everything. It was well integrated, knew how to win. The facilities and understanding were there. Great driver, that close alliance with Bridgestone. And all of this really, really worked. Aero-wise, it was a good car. Lots and lots of powerful underbody arrow on that car so that also meant they could get away with running a little bit less wing often which was great for straight line speed the engine was strong and, and reliable the other factor though is that performance is relative isn't it you have a certain performance level for the car but it's what's the opposition doing and as we alluded to obviously mclaren were underachieving and williams were underachieving at this point those were the two obvious rivals who were not getting it right and then that meant bar and and kind of emerging renault with a with a two challenges and neither of them were quite in a position to to do it this was a great car but it, there was nothing particularly clever about it in isolation it was just a really really good package and stunningly quick it it actually this car held a lot of the lap records up until relatively recently it wasn't until we went to the 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 wide body high downforce cars in 2017 that those lap records that were preserved were starting to fall so yeah great car but 
I think in 2004, some of the competition uh, led itself and let Formula One down. And I, I'm sorry to say that, uh, that, that McLaren was part of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with what Ed just said there. I think um, take nothing away from what Michael and Ferrari achieved, but, but yeah, the main rivals disappointed to some extent. It's almost a perfect storm for Michael, particularly for Michael that year, because quick car, very reliable car when others weren't. That was absolutely key, as I touched on earlier on, particularly back in that era, having a reliable car was, you know, was as valuable as having a quick car because many times people didn't finish the Grand Prix. Um, but also Ferrari and Michael had built a team around Michael. You know, it just alluded to it a little bit there, but but we don't see that very often, in particularly in the modern day. It doesn't happen to the same extent, I don't think, very often anymore. And yet that was an entire Ferrari organization centered around one driver, the might of the entire organization all pointing to give every to give the opportunities to one driver. Every other team on the grids, pretty much, I'm sure, was splitting that resource to some extent across two drivers. And and I think there's something to be said for that. And I think, you know, the other elements that we've sort of briefly touched on earlier on where there were how true they are or not, rumors around regulations favoring one particular team, tire rules, for example, uh, favoring one team. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to suggest that's the reason he won because that, that would be totally disrespectful. But I think there was a lot of stuff going on that year that all sort of narrowed down and, and pointed towards a success for, for Michael that um, at the time, nobody, and I hold my hands up to say, when he won that Grand Prix and won that, uh, that World Championship, everybody said there's no way this will ever be beaten. Yeah, we as we said, as I mentioned before, this dominance was unprecedented at the time. We've since had to live through it again with Mercedes and particularly Lewis Hamilton of late. There was also, I think, a, a little clue in what one of the uh, quotes we mentioned from Ross earlier, where he talked about designing a car for a particular set of rules. I know Mark Hughes has said on Bring Back V10s in the past that one of the things that caught Ferrari out in 2003 was that they designed a car to the, the rules as they were in 2002. And then qualifying was changed. Uh, you had to qualify with your race start fuel load and that sort of thing. 2004 was Ferrari being able to design a car to the rules it knew about. But Mark, we're going to finish the episode uh, with your perspective on probably on, on Sunday night in Spa in a way, because did it dampen the McLaren celebrations at all that you took this long-awaited victory but it was on the day Schumacher and Ferrari were celebrating making history. It didn't, you know, and I was, just, I was actually just about to say that in that um, my overriding memory isn't of Schumacher winning the title that year. It was almost that passed me by. I know it was obviously the big story of the day, but inside our garage, winning the Grand Prix was such a big deal for us. You know, we'd, we'd won many of them the year before. We'd won plenty of them in, in the years that preceded that. So to go for a, such a long spell without winning one, was a real drought. And, you know, that sounds like you're a bit spoiled. And we were to some extent because we'd had so much success. I was very fortunate to be at McLaren through a, an extended spell of success where we were always at the front, challenging for race wins, even world titles. Um, and so for that long spell of drought was a, was a huge blow. It was depressing. It was people were starting to get down inside the garage. We were having and, and, you know, the other thing that happens when you're not winning from a from a perspective of the mechanics and the people inside the garage is that kind of just translates into more work because although you're not winning, you're desperately trying to find your way out of it. You feel like you have to be seen to be working harder than anybody else. And it, it equates to a lot of late nights, more parts coming to the racetrack that then need fitting. And it's just a huge hard slog. And so the win on that Sunday night was just the most immense sense of relief, releasing of, of tension. 
Well, I remember at the chequered flag, back in those days, you had to run quite a long way from the garages to the podium um, where it was situated. And um, I remember running down there, desperate to get to the podium. I was so overjoyed. And I remember getting to the, the sort of steps of the podium and grabbing a camera, a TV cameraman and grabbing the camera. And I remember sort of, you know, like you sometimes see footballers do when they score a goal, running to the camera, grabbing the lens and swearing my head off <laughs> down the lens. And I got to the end of that and I thought, there's no way they could ever put that on telly. <laughs> it's just expletive after expletive. But it was just this outpouring of emotion that we we hadn't experienced for what seemed like such a long period of time. And I'm well aware that some people never get to experience that, but it become almost the norm for us. So to have such a long period of drought was was massive. So my overriding emotion of that weekend and certainly that Sunday night was the the massive celebration that we had, even though it was only one win and there were much bigger stories going on at the time. I think uh, having watched this race back, I, I think they didn't show you swearing into the camera, but now you mention it, I think they might have cut to that shot after you'd kind of put the camera back down. There, there, I think I did see you uh, a shot of you and some of your colleagues, um, but so I had no yeah. idea what was going on just before they cut to that shot. Um, that's it for for Spa 2004. Then, as we know, the McLaren mechanics didn't stand around and watch the the uh, Ferrari championship photo by the sounds of it. Uh, and this was only one of three races in 2004 that Ferrari didn't win. Thanks to Mark and to Ed for their first-hand insight into, uh, which is what well, Mark's insight on what it was like being there, and Ed's, as usual, incredible in-depth research and memories for bring back. V10s. Make sure you check out uh, Mark's podcast, Pit Lane Life Lessons. We'll definitely have you on the show again if we can uh, squeeze into your diary. Uh, remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Anything about F1's V10 era, or you can email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. Next time, we're heading back into the 1990s to the beginning of Albert Park's run as the host of the Australian Grand Prix, where Martin Brundle's Jordan famously snapped in half at the start in 1996, and a certain Canadian came so close to winning on his F1 debut. The Athletic.